welcome back to another episode of Crimes in Witch Demeanors. I'm your host, Joshua Spellman. You should know that by now. Today, we're headed back to Forum and covering a sensational Depression-era murder with ghosts aplenty. Today, our adventure begins in Victoria, British Columbia. And for those of you who don't know, that is on the west coast of Canada. And from there, we're going to be hopping all the way across the pond to Bournemouth, England for a scandalous murder-suicide. And then we're going to be going back to Victoria to the Fairmount Empress Hotel to talk about the spirits that rest or don't rest there, including the ones from England. It's a little confusing, but I promise it's worth it. So grab a hot cocoa, put on your parka, and head with me over to Victoria, British Columbia. At 721 Government Street in downtown Victoria sits an empress. The Fairmount Empress, formerly known as the Empress, is one of Victoria's historic landmarks and also happens to be the noble host of many mislaid spirits. Her architect, Francis Rattenbury, left an indelible stamp on the architecture of British Columbia. Originally born in Leeds, England, he skipped across the pond and a whole continent, landing in Vancouver in 1892. He was only 25 years old, but he had incredibly grand plans, and not all of them were architectural. Rattenbury planned to take advantage of the building boom happening in the region due to westward expansion. Francis Rattenbury placed an ad in the paper that would lead him down the path to begin his new life. However, little did he know that 42 years later, an ad in the paper would also pave the path towards his dreadful end. Rattenbury's advertisement claimed he was a classically trained architect who studied under the world-renowned architect Henry Lockwood. But if anyone had read further than his headline, it didn't show, especially seeing as Lockwood died when Rattenbury was only 11 years old. Even if Lockwood had taught him anything, it couldn't have been very much. An architectural contest had been announced for a new design to replace Victoria's detested parliament buildings. Naturally, Rattenbury saw this as an opportunity and leapt at it. Entering the contest, he signed his designs with the pseudonym ABC Architect. His incredibly grand and overly ambitious design caught the attention of the judges. Rattenbury ended up winning the competition out of 66 total entries from around the globe. While construction on the Parliament building was still underway, Rattenbury had met his wife, Florence Nunn. They married and had their first child only seven months later which was quite salacious at the time. During their marriage, Francis and Florence had two children together, Frank and Mary. The construction on the Parliament building was finally completed in 1898, and while grand and opulent, it had run $400,000 over budget, or the modern-day equivalent of $12 million. One would think this would be an isolated incident, but unfortunately, it became a pattern for Rattenbury. His projects were known to be a nightmare to work on. Rattenbury notoriously underestimated the budget of his bids and would throw the burden of the additional costs onto his contractors, even driving one to bankruptcy. He would also change the designs at the last moment, reject building materials he had selected earlier in favor of some new whim, and would battle with anyone who dared to question his designs. Despite this horrible reputation, Rattenbury was extraordinarily successful. His portfolio came to include many high-profile projects, 
and he became the Canadian Pacific Railroad's Western Division architect. It was this title with the CPR that allowed him to design the ostentatious resort hotels across Canada, ultimately leading to the commission to design the Empress in 1903. However, in 1906, in his typical fashion, Rattenbury grew frustrated with the others working on the Empress project. In his mind, Rattenbury believed that Walter Painter, the CPR's head architect, was ruining his vision for the Grand Hotel. In a rage, Rattenbury ended up leaving the CPR and, in doing so, also left the Empress Hotel project. And the losses did not end there. After reaching such meteoric highs and becoming a pillar in Victoria's society, it appeared to all begin crashing down around him. He lost the next two design contests he had entered and was exposed for winning others by less than honest means. Rattenbury was accused of money laundering and his marriage was also suffering. There was one light at the end of the tunnel. One project had the potential to save him, and that was working on the Grand Trunk Railway. But sadly, this prospect was ruined when the general manager, Charles Hayes, ended up dying on the Titanic. However, unlike the Titanic, Rattenbury did manage to keep enough projects to stay afloat, but by the end of 1912, his marriage had hit rock bottom. Things had gotten so bad that his daughter Mary became the middleman between him and Florence, carrying messages between the two like a pigeon. In 1923, Rattenbury hit a winning streak. At the age of 56, he won the bid to design Victoria's Crystal Garden and the heart of Alma Pakenham, a 26-year-old flapper who had a scandalous reputation for drinking and smoking in public. Alma had also been married twice before and had a son, Christopher, from one of those marriages. Being head over heels in love with Alma, Rattenbury first approached Florence for a divorce, but when she had refused, he decided to make his affair as public as possible and would flaunt Alma around before bringing her home to drink and fornicate late into the night, all while Florence sat in her bedroom just upstairs. Eventually, Rattenbury moved out of his home, but he also made sure to shut off the electricity and heating when he did so, leaving his wife and child without any utilities. Once a pillar in the community, Rattenbury's scandalous and downright wicked behavior ultimately led him to be shunned by his friends, his profession, and the community. Finally, in 1925, Florence granted a divorce, and Rattenbury immediately married Alma and had their own son together, John. However, due to this scandal and his architectural style largely falling out of favor, Rattenbury and Alma faced financial hardships. They remained in Canada for some time longer, and in 1929, the same year his ex-wife Florence died, Francis Rattenbury and Alma moved to Bournemouth, England with their son. Rattenbury hoped that moving across the pond would improve their finances and his reputation. However, once moving into the Villa Madeira on Manor Road, things only worsened. By 1934, Francis Rattenbury was old, nearly deaf, impotent, and suicidal. Needing assistance around the house, the Rattenburys placed an ad in the Bournemouth Daily Echo, seeking a, quote, willing lad who was, quote, good-natured and honest. And this is the ad that would be the beginning of the end of Francis Rattenbury. 18-year-old George Stoner responded to the advertisement and was promptly hired by Alma. Stoner was a quiet, shy, friendless young man and was grateful for the work. Alma was absolutely enthralled by George and his youthful virility, something that her husband lacked. In fact, Alma and Frances hadn't had intercourse since the birth of their son John, years prior. 
Alma was still rather young and was growing tired of her situation with her husband. And so, after three months of George's employment, Alma seduced him. Not long after their passionate affair began, George was promoted from being their chauffeur and gardener to Alma's live-in lover, taking up residence in a spare bedroom. It was said that Rattenbury acknowledged and silently excused the affair. He was well aware of his advancing age, ill health, and alcoholism. However, neither Rattenbury nor Alma could anticipate the rage and violent jealousy that dwelt within the quiet heart of George Stoner. As the affair progressed, George would become exceedingly mad if Alma had spent any time with her husband, no matter how trivial. Alma tried to break off the affair on a number of different occasions, but this would also send George into a rage. At one point, he even tried to strangle her. Things came to a head, so to speak, on March 24, 1935. Alma and Frances had just returned from a trip to London, and as usual, Frances was fairly depressed. Seeing this, Alma had decided to arrange for yet another trip the following weekend to visit a friend in hopes that this would cheer him up. Stoner was already furious that Alma had spent the weekend away with her husband, and the news of yet another trip with him sent him over the edge. Seething, Stoner left the Rattenbury residence to visit his parents' home, and while there asked to borrow a carpenter's mallet that he said he needed to erect a fence in the Rattenbury's garden. Upon returning to the Villa Madeira, George Stoner threatened to shoot Alma with a gun, but was quickly dissuaded. However, later that evening, around 10 p.m., Carpenter's mallet in hand, Stoner made his way downstairs to the parlor and bashed in the head of Francis Rattenbury. Stoner had hit Rattenbury with such force that his false teeth shot across the room and half of his skull was completely removed by the force of the blows. However, despite these brutal injuries, Rattenbury didn't die. When police arrived early that Monday morning, Alma appeared sleepless, disturbed, and under the influence of alcohol, drugs, or both. I've done him in. I've done him in. I've done him in, she repeated over and over to the police officers. The police conducted their initial investigation, took statements, and left. They returned the next day, where Alma repeated this confession, and because of this, she was arrested for attempted murder. While Alma was being held in prison, George Stoner allegedly confessed to the housekeeper that he had been the one that made the attempt on Rattenbury's life. Naturally, the housekeeper snitched, and this confession led him to also being arrested on attempted murder charges. However, that Thursday, both Stoner's and Alma's charges were elevated to murder when Rattenbury succumbed to his injuries. Alma's oldest son visited her in prison, and after he had left, she quickly recanted her earlier confession, saying that she was in a state of shock and duress at the time. The murder quickly went on trial and was an absolute sensation, mainly due to the rumors of Stoner's cocaine addiction and the scandalous affair. In fact, due to the local popularity of the case, the trial had to be held in London, in the Old Bailey, instead of back in the Winchester, in Bournemouth. By the time the trial began, both defendants entered a plea of not guilty and had taken back their previous confessions. The trial didn't last long and Alma was acquitted of all charges and released, but Stoner was convicted of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. The public felt an immense amount of sympathy for Stoner and villainized Alma as a temptress who seduced him into committing a violent crime. 
As Alma left the Old Bailey that day, a free woman, onlookers booed her, screamed at her, and threw things. Awful articles were run in the papers, and people called for her death. Distressed by all this, Alma took a train from Waterloo to Christchurch. She walked across the meadows to the Three Arches Railway Bridge and sat on the bank for a while, casually smoking a cigarette, writing some notes. And then she got up, walked to the water's edge, pulled out a dagger, and stabbed herself six times in the heart before falling into the river Stour. A note was later found in her handbag that read, It has been pointed out too vividly that I cannot help him, and that is my death sentence. Despite being initially painted as a villain in the media, over 3,000 individuals attended her funeral, which was a stark contrast to the reported, quote, only few that attended her late husband, Rattenbury's. In fact, Rattenbury didn't even receive a headstone and instead was buried in an unmarked grave. In a turn of fate, Stoner was saved from death. A petition signed by over 300,000 people commuted his sentence to life imprisonment instead of hanging. Even stranger still, Stoner only served seven years of his sentence and was released in 1942 to fight in the Second World War. After the war, he remained free, and he ended up marrying and having a daughter. He lived a quiet and fairly uneventful life until 1990 when he was arrested for indecently exposing himself to a 12-year-old boy in a public bathroom. For this incident, he received only two years probation. During his life, he frequently admitted that it was Alma who had murdered her husband and that he had been innocent. Curiously, in the year 2000, George Stoner died in a hospital at Christchurch, less than half a mile from the scene of Alma's suicide, and he died on the 65th anniversary of the murder of Francis Rattenbury. Francis Rattenbury did end up receiving some closure. In 2007, 72 years after his brutal murder, he finally received a headstone, which was financed by a family friend. Despite dying across the pond in England, Francis Rattenbury's ghost does not dwell in Bournemouth. Instead, his spirit remains in Canada. If you spend a night at the Fairmount Empress back in Victoria, you may be lucky enough to catch a glimpse of old man rats. What better place for his ghost to dwell than his greatest pride? A structure that reminds him of a time when his life was full of elegance, opulence, and prestige. A good scandal. I feel like we just don't have those these days anymore. Am I right or am I right? The last thing I expected when I was doing my research for this episode was starting my research in Victoria, British Columbia, and somehow ending up in Bournemouth to learn about the ghosts that reside all the way back in Canada. I also wasn't expecting such a juicy story. So for the narration that you just heard, I synthesized a few sources to get the most accurate and well-rounded view of the murder. Even shaky sources in this case were actually fairly accurate, except that some did say he was murdered with a croquet mallet, which just wasn't true. But I guess it does sound a lot more English than a carpenter's hammer. But there is one thing I do not understand about this, and that's the haunting. Why? 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 
So yes, Francis Rattenbury did design the Fairmont Empress, and it was one of his greatest architectural feats, but he left the project two years before it was completed. As I mentioned, he was known to be rotten and controlling, and he abandoned the project because it wasn't going his way. So why would he go out of his way to haunt it? It doesn't make sense to me. Now, I don't have any evidence that he spent any time at the Empress after it was finished, and just judging by what we know of his personality, I don't think that he would have. Obviously, what I'm saying is all conjecture. Am I the only one that thinks that? Like, would Rattenbury's ghost, who died 4,700 miles away in a place that he then considered to be his home, and even on that, the place where he was brutally murdered and died under traumatic circumstances, when people die in like these really horrific ways, their spirit tends to be trapped, their energy tends to be trapped in the place that it happened. Not 4,700 miles away at a place that he happened to design, but didn't really spend any physical time or have like a huge connection with. It doesn't make sense to me. But what makes sense to me is Lizzie McGrath's spirit. Lizzie McGrath died in a tragic and unexpected way at the Fairmont Empress, and it's led to her spirit being one of the most active ghosts in the hotel. Now, the story goes that Lizzie McGrath was a chambermaid at the Empress Hotel, and back in those days, maids and other employees usually lived on-site at the hotel, which was the case for Lizzie. Now, Lizzie being an Irish immigrant, she was a devout Catholic and would say the rosary on her fire escape every night. She would go out there for a little bit of privacy for some fresh air and would say her rosary before going to bed. However, one night in 1909, Lizzie McGrath opened her window and got onto the fire escape. But there was one problem. The fire escape had been removed earlier that day for renovations, and she plummeted to her death on the walkway below, right at the entrance of the hotel. So this story I liked a lot and I decided to investigate. So Lizzie McGrath or Elizabeth McGrath is a very common name. So in my research, I decided to narrow it down to 1909, focusing on newspapers and records from Victoria and just the Pacific Northwest at large. But I couldn't find anything. This is because it turns out that Elizabeth died in 1910 and not in 1909. I discovered this information by both Victoria's death index, her gravesite, and newspaper articles from the Victoria Daily Times. So the real story is that Lizzie McGrath died on July 30th, 1910, at 50 years of age. The newspaper articles say that she was a native of Halifax, which I'm assuming would be Halifax, Nova Scotia, but I know that there is a Halifax in England. But again, she was an Irish immigrant, so that wouldn't really make sense either. And this article also states that her family all resides in Victoria, with an exception of a few in the, quote, East, which to me would indicate probably Nova Scotia or thereabouts, maybe Ontario. But newspapers are known to be wrong quite often. But McGrath is a very Irish name, but I know it's not her name. She was married. So not knowing her surname, it was difficult to look at any immigration records or birth records, census records, etc. without really knowing a lot of information. There is a book by a man named Ian Gibbs that says they know a lot about her, and I do trust it, though the same article that cites his book did say that this happened in 1909, and it didn't. So I can't really put a lot of faith in that there is this information. 
And also, unlike the story, Lizzie didn't die at the Empress. She died at St. Joseph's Hospital a number of days later. And when I first read the story, I was like, how did she not know that there was no fire escape outside the window? You think you would notice that. But I, I understand maybe it was dark. She was tired. She just wanted to say her rosary, spend time with her God and whatnot. And it actually turns out that there was prosecution involved after her death where they found the contractors guilty for not notifying the residents of the hotel that they had removed the fire escape. So despite some minor details, this story about Elizabeth McGrath is true. She did die from falling out of the window thinking there was a fire escape, blah, 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 blah. And her ghost is said to roam around and clean. So yet another hotel with a maid ghost. How original. But don't fret, there is a unique spirit at the Empress as well. Another popular ghost is that of an elderly woman. Her identity seems to be unknown, although she has been given the name Margaret, again by Ian Gibbs, the author of Victoria's Most Haunted. In his book, he alleges that Margaret is an old woman who used to stay at the hotel every winter season, which to me is weird. Usually snowbirds, you know, you leave Canada for the winter, you don't stay in Canada for the winter, but I digress. She passed away of natural causes on her room on the sixth floor where her regular residence was. And after her death, the hotel stopped renting out the room because there was a lot of weird things that would happen there. And eventually, because of this, it was chosen for the area where new elevators were going to be installed. Which to me is weird because you would think that elevators would be installed in a place that would make sense to make your way through the hotel or they would be installed where it would make structural sense where the whole entire building wouldn't come crumbling down around you. But apparently they did it because it was haunted and they were like, we can just cut a shaft through this room and put elevators here. That makes sense. So that part of the story is really suspicious and shaky, but regardless, those staying at the hotel may receive a knock on their door in the middle of the night. And if you go to answer the door, you may find an elderly woman explaining to you that she's lost and she can't find her room. If you're kind enough to help this old woman instead of just being a grouch from being awoken in the middle of the night, and you lead her up to the sixth floor, she'll promptly vanish at the spot of the elevator. And apparently this has happened to many guests where they had been confused and they would go to the front desk and explain this to them. And they're just like, oh yeah, that's the ghost. I do like this story because like Lizzie's, it actually makes sense. She had died in the hotel. She was attached to the hotel and she's lost both spiritually and physically since the room that she used to had no longer exists. She can't find it. So she's lost in the spiritual plane looking for this place that no longer exists, which is just really sad. I did want to verify this information, but I really didn't have anything to go on. I didn't have a name. I didn't have a year. I didn't have anything. I don't have access to hotel records to see the people who had died there. So I'm just going to say this is just a very interesting story. There's other hauntings that allegedly happen, but these spirits, Rattenbury, Lizzie, and Margaret, are the most common spirits that people will see at the Fairmount Empress. Now, as usual, I wanted to try and find some first-hand encounters and stories about the ghosts at the hotel. So, naturally, I went to my go-to. I went to Reddit, didn't find anything. I went to hotel reviews and sadly came up kind of empty-handed. Most people just said that the hotel looked like it should be haunted because they have, like, period wallpaper and weird oil paintings on the walls. 
But one privileged man did say his experience was haunted slash haunting because he didn't have a king-size bed and his accommodations weren't up to his standards. This review was just like the epitome of entitlement. It was really gross. He's just a haunted man, a haunted, haunted rich man. But I continued to look through hotel reviews and eventually came across a question on TripAdvisor. I wish you could just read it, but it says, has anyone had a ghost experience here? LOL, no question mark, LOL, all in caps. But the answers are very interesting. One person answered, we stayed on the sixth floor and there was an odd feeling. Okay, that supports like the story of the old lady on the sixth floor. Another person said, yes, we had an experience late at night on the sixth floor near room 657. That's all they said. Like, okay, Wayne Carl, do you care to elaborate on that? Some of us have podcasts to make and there's not a lot of content out here. You can't just leave us with a cliffhanger. Another extremely detailed answer to this question says that they saw something. They put something in quotes. What did you see, Darren? I want to know what you saw. Darren, you can't just say you saw something and then put it in quotes and like not tell what you saw. Another kind soul answered this question and he let us know that he did see spirits, spirits, multiple spirits in his glass. Wow, Ferd, so original with a name like Ferd, which is so original. You couldn't have had a better joke. We've all heard that one and it's not funny. It's not funny, Ferd. Oh my god, it sounds like some gastrointestinal disease. So with that, with Ferd's wonderful answer to this question, draws us to our conclusion of this week's episode. I feel like we're going to have a lot of episodes on haunted hotels since these are places that people frequent often, they can visit often, so there's usually more experiences. In this case, we didn't have that, but the one thing I do love about this story is that we have this wonderful true crime story from England that's absolutely, to me at least, it's really exciting. Um, There are some great news clippings that I'm going to put on the Instagram. Um, I was fortunate enough that one of the articles I read directly pulled from different archives and libraries, but this gives us the opportunities to see some of these English newspapers, which are just amazing. Other than that, if you do like the podcast and you haven't already, please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps with our rankings and just lets people know that you actually like this show and that you want it to continue. So thank you so much for tuning in. I had a great time. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, please don't put ads in newspapers of any kind because apparently it seems like bad luck. Avoid carpenter's mallets. And of course, stay curious, stay spooky. And I'll see you soon. Bye.